0: Now without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: Thank all of you. I got a low table, but I can see most of you okay. Uh I'm Jess, and I'm an exceptionally, overwhelmingly, unbelievingly grateful sexaholic. Yes. Yes. You know, it's the funniest thing in the world that a sex pervert like me has to come into recovery and ends up getting the greatest thing there is in the world. You know, that just, you know, God has got such a fabulous sense of humor. <laughs> a piece of garbage like me, you know, and and ending up with you and with a good path, and you know, and you folks helped point the way. So what I'm here for is, in one of the other programs, uh, they have a a tape that has been tremendously useful, which is a newcomer's tape. And uh, one of the guys in our meeting out there, a newcomer, came to one of our meetings and somebody gave him a tape. And I thought, my God, that's not the kind of tape to give somebody fresh and new to this program. And I thought, well, okay, what kind of tape would there be that would be a right to somebody fresh and new to the program? What kind of things would you or I want to say to a guy, to our own brother, or to our own sister, if they walked in their first meeting and we wanted to give them something to take away from that first meeting? And so that's what this tape is, is... is, My best idea, following in the footsteps of the guy that made the newcomer's tape here in California many years ago in another program. Now, overwhelmingly, if my own brother came to me and said, yes, I think I might be a sex addict, I'd say, first of all, get a meeting. First of all, get with you people. Hear your story. Secondly, get an essay book and take it home with you. Take the essay folder home with you. The most, to me, one of the most... I always thought Chapter 5 in AA was the greatest, most inspired thing I'd ever read, the first part of Chapter 5. But to me, our problem and our solution, maybe it's just because I'm a sexaholic, but to me that is the most beautiful, powerful language there is. I've read it to people on the phone You know, people who are in this field, not sex addicts, and say, Where did that come from? You know, that the power of those words are so striking. So, those three things I would want that my own brother to carry out of that first meeting. I want him to carry out you and your faces and the shine of sexual sobriety on your face. Rick down in Phoenix used to call that the essay shine. After a person's been sober 90 days, like when John was speaking, that that essay shine was, was there. I got a sneaking suspicion John's face might not have looked like that the day before he walked in here. <laughs> because for most people, we were awful dark looking. <laughs> when we walked in here, the cloud of, of, of horror, really, at what we were doing just showed out. And also, to me, by and large, a person doesn't need to tell me that they've had a slip in this program. To me, the darkness of their face shows it. In fact, uh, uh, in, in, Oklahoma City, we had a, one of our members was a member of the United Council of, he's head of the United Council of Churches. And, uh, came back from one of the International Council of Churches meetings, which was in Vancouver, and he walked into our meeting place, and we said, I said, him, what's wrong with you? Oh, nothing, nothing. I'm just fine. And later, he confessed that he had lost his sexual sobriety at the International Council of Churches and that that's what that darkness was. But he didn't want to tell us because he thought he had to be a good example because of his profession for us. How can you be a good example looking, you know, like he was looking? But that's the kind of thing we understand. Like I say, that's why I would want my brother to see you people and see your faces and see what... Uh, the warmth and love and what's in your eyes now that you're sexually sober. And then, like I said, want him to have the white book and the folder. But uh, I'm going to tell him the other things that I'd like him also ha- to have. Uh, and these are the things that we've found in our uh, first ten years of 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 essay sobriety for 10, 11 years. And these are the things that we worked out. Many of us uh, are isolated from each other in the sense of different, there would maybe only be one or two people sober in each city, and uh, we would call each other on the telephone and share our sobriety. There wasn't a whole room full of people like there is here. And And these are the kind of things that we found out the first thing that didn't occur to us at all is how far down we had gone. We had the idea that if we would just stop the worst of our acting out, we would be just lovely people.
2: <laughs>
1: you know, dust us off a little and we're just beautiful. And all the problems with the law and the wife or the husband or, you know, society, that all go instantly away. We had just this little problem where we just kept acting out. And, boy, it took us a long time. As we started to recover from our illness, it took us a long time to see how sick we were because of what we were, where we were now <laughs> compared to where we were then. I had one of the examples of it. Uh, in the first 30 days of the program, my son and daughter were both alcoholism counselors. And I went to Oklahoma City from Phoenix. Well, I got the program, and they both looked at me after 30 days of sexual sobriety, no lust for 30 days, no acting out for 30 days, and they both looked at me and said, Dad, you're different. Well, you know, I just couldn't conceive of it. What the, what had I been before, and what was I now, and I didn't conceive of how bad I was before, that they could immediately see some difference in their father. And it was a stunning thing to see how far off the mark I was. Because uh, there's a, a tremendous progressiveness here. We just, we start down a toboggan slide to hell, and then we just keep going further and further down, and each step is worse than the one before it. And the, the thing, like I say, we learned that by seeing all of the things that we got rid of that helped show us how much we had of how bad it was. And I know one of the feelings that I had in early recovery was all of a sudden I had a sense of integrity that the outside matched the inside all of a sudden. Whereas before, I put this phony front up and I did, (laughs) you know, no way would I want anybody, even I didn't even want to think about what was inside there. And there was a total lack of integrity. The outside was one way and the inside was, you know, if you knew what I was like inside, what I had done, what I was doing. You you couldn't bear to see it. Couldn't bear to be around me. And, And another idea that we had, and it's so humorous because when we planned one of the first conferences in Seattle, first was in one was in salt lake and the next one in seattle no the next one in phoenix the third one was in Se- seattle So our third conference we were still figuring out how cheap we could make the conferences we kind of like bring your own sleeping bag and we've got some campground here that you can park in we figured sexaholics were so awful people you know we were the ones who planning the thing we were doing pretty well financially but we figured all the rest of you guys were just some skid row bumps and totally worthless <laughs> You know, we're you know we're staying in these beautiful hotels, and it's like money is no object. Well, it reveals really the true nature of the people who become sex addicts. Uh, and I see it now so clearly. Like the people I sponsor, I sponsor a playwright, a psychiatrist, a master of engineering, a priest, a minister, and help sponsor an opera singer. I've only got one guy sponsored that is is anywhere out of the upper echelons of income earning. Okay, why? Well, simple. You have got to have, unfortunately, quite a bit of intelligence to look at a picture in a Montgomery Ward calendar of a, or a catalog of a woman in her underwear and get sexually stimulated by that. <laughs> uh, you know, we kind of they take that for granted, but your ordinary ditch digger that does not turn him on that much. <laughs> he needs something a little more concrete than that. But because of our minds, we can make a lot out of out of very little, really. So up until uh, about 10, 15 years ago, there was no answer for us. And the answer was we were just progressing in our addiction in it. We didn't have the same kind of end as the alcoholic. In the sense of a, an alcoholic, uh, it takes you right to your death almost always. Uh, this took us to a moral death, and some of us would would face prison or or being shot by jealous husband or shot for by families with window peeped on or things like that. Uh, but most of it was just of us would just die this disgusting death to me, which is way way worse than a physical death of just going lower and lower into degradation and more and more isolated from everybody in real society and real humanity. We had the blessing then of somebody showing us the heart of our addiction, and that's why we're here. In my case, it was my wife saying, get in Sexaholics Anonymous or get out. Okay, I'm a Montana guy, and to get into Sexaholics Anonymous, i got to get to Phoenix, Arizona at the right time with a wife with adequate amount of recovery, with people around her who know enough about sexaholics that I can get out. And there's the one, that was the one functioning group, really, in the United States at that time in 1983, was in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, now you figure out what kind of planning it takes to engineer that. I want to say to God, God what in the world about me is make it worth you're worth going all that trouble <laughs> just so i could come into this program i don't understand yeah you know, how can you understand something that much my wife said get in sex Addicts anonymous or get out and she gave me a telephone two telephone numbers i called the first one in an essay folder and kent said just it's lust it's what's in your head that was killing you and right on that moment i got the greatest gift that I have ever received in my entire lifetime which was a gift of a momentary silence where I was able to and quietness where I was able to look into my very soul and see my God that's what's wrong with me I had looked for everything else and had not found the answer I was looking for but at 57 and a half years of age I saw what was wrong with me my God that's it And I need to come into this program. And I became sexually sober that moment. I I didn't have to go to my first meeting either. I'd had at that time I'd had 17 years of 12-step program, so I knew all about I knew all of the other parts. The I had all the other pieces of the puzzle, and I knew immediately that I could get immediate relief from lust, which happened to be the only part of my addiction remaining. But it's the most awful part, really. Most people come in lusting and acting out. I came in with almost seven years of not acting out, but lusting every night and every day. So I'm a a beautiful example of how sick you can get without acting out and how much lust is the core of the thing. So I get the same relief from giving up lusting that you guys, that those of you who lusted and acted out both, Got from giving up lusting and acting out. So those were the most precious words that I ever heard. And uh, God gave me this beautiful gift. And why God gave me that beautiful gift? And of course, for years I went through thinking, well, I had some fantastic strength that I could give up lust. And why the heck didn't these other idiots that were coming in SA say give up lust as quickly and easily as I did? It's just like a guy with a million dollars who inherited it, saying, you know, hey, you dummy, how come yours? You're so poor, why don't you work hard like me and you can be rich too? No, he's missed one little thing. He's he got a million dollars handed to him. Okay, and that's the mistake I was making. I had had the gift handed to me and then was taking credit for it for some years. It took me some years to understand that it was a free gift from God and why I was given this gift, I will never know. Why I was given this program and the knowledge of it, I'll never know. And one of the things that we will do, and I've seen a lot of people make this mistake, we come in here and say, oh, my God, I'm not that bad. I'm not sick like those people with their awful stories. I can do this myself. You know, it's the famous television commercial, I can do it myself, mother, when the mother's trying to butt in and show the daughter how to bake a cake or whatever. And we say, I can do it myself. I'm not going to sit around with those greasy clowns and who are so sick they can't control themselves. I can control myself. I can do it myself. Okay, I spent 7 years doing that. And and I say it does not work and I don't know anybody who has been able to make it work. And that's from lots of years of experience and uh, when I was sponsored by the old AAs, I'm not an alcoholic, but a guy saw it was nuts, he just didn't know what the drug was.
2: <laughs>
1: they told me, they told me about AA that if you drop out of AA, you're going to get drunk and die. I mean, they, you know, the general people. Well, I saw, and I, I live in a small, relatively small t- town, 25,000 people, so I know a lot of people in Bozeman. And I saw people in Bozeman over the years drop out, and they, and some of them died, but some of them didn't die. But I saw one interesting thing about it. They were really quitting using us as a resource after X, uh, you know, six months, a year, well not six months, a year or two of sobriety, and then they said, well, I'll, I'll do it on my own. But as I've watched those people that have, they're, they're still sober. And I, but as I've watched them, I've learned a very interesting thing. It's like they're willing to settle for half a life. They got enough sobriety to take the heat off. On their in terms of their conscience, but they didn't get the sobriety that I see people get who stay here and are willing to associate with each other and ourselves year after year after year. So there's a couple of ways of ducking this program. One is to write off, say, I can do it myself, and I've seen that doesn't work. Another one is to say, well, I might need you guys for a while, but then I'll do it for myself, and that doesn't work worth a damn either. And I think, I think the hardest thing to understand, especially for a newcomer about this program, is that word lust. To me, it's like we're blind and we can't see the word. In fact, as newcomers, to me, there's uh, two or three things that we don't see when we first come in. We don't see it's about stopping lusting. We notice it's about stopping masturbation and having sex and, and our different forms of, of, of se- getting s- sexual comfort. But we don't see about lusting. What the hell's lusting got to do with it? And the other thing we don't see is not getting into relationships. Good God, if I don't get into relationship, I'll die. I'll certainly die. You know. And those are the two things we don't see and, and particularly lust. And and again, uh when we first came into this program, there were the other two programs going simultaneously, and we were the one with the real tough restrictions. We were so tough on stuff, and I thought we would never go anyplace. It was good for me, but I didn't see that, that we would ever stand much of a chance in the marketplace of these ideas, but that hasn't worked out. It is Oddly enough, this so-called tough program is the one that has grown solidly and steadily through the years. Why is that? And to me, the answer is the power in stopping lust and the focus there but i see how long it takes for newcomers to begin to understand that we really mean it and that lust is really harmful and they can't conceive of it so they got two problems with lust and i'll talk about the first one first but i'll also mention both of them right now they can't conceive that lust is so harmful to them and then they can't conceive if they do get to that point they can't conceive that they see that they conceive that they could ever live without lust. The thing that's their constant comforter every day in their life, from the time they're about five years old up until the present time. Okay, so let's talk about lust and why it is a problem. Okay, like I say in my case, the minute I gave it up for thirty days, all of a sudden my two kids could tell the difference in me. What in the hell was it doing to me? That they could see a difference in just thirty days. Well, I know now what it was doing to me. It was making me total, totally blind to all of life. That any, anything that I didn't like, and I jumped into lust. And it's like, well, I guess it'd be like cutting. You got a computer. You cut the, the you cut the the wire from the keyboard. To- the monitor you got trouble with your computer right away okay that's what we do with lust is we cut off all of the precious input into our system that says hey you're off base buddy quit it we hear that and we jump into lust and then they ignore the thing we don't like fire alarm that uh, fire alarm so we cut the wires to the fire alarm we don't go and look and see where in the hell the fire is okay lust is literally killing us Because always lust means we are never where we are. We are always someplace else. I was sitting in my chair one day and my daughter, who was about nine years old, came up to my chair and waved her hands in front of my eyes. Dad, are you in there? And of course, the answer was, no, I wasn't. I was gone. Okay. And we say, well, I wasn't doing anything. I'm just lusting. Okay, I've come to understand this much better, and and they didn't know this then, but they do know it now, that what bothers a man more than anything is when his wife has sex with somebody else or girlfriend. Okay, what bothers a woman, a, a wife or a girlfriend, is when the guy has an emotional attachment to somebody else. It isn't focused on the sex the way it is for the guy. Okay, when I'm fantasizing on uh, having sex with somebody else, guess what? I got an emotional investment and an attachment to that other person, and that's why women, particularly—but it's the same thing in reverse with the, the husbands or the or the you know the mates of, of women sexaholics. But particularly the men or the wives could never get a hold of us because we were never there. We were always someplace else. We were always out there in the old zone. And that was where lust took us all of the time. Okay, that's why we've got to give that stuff up. Okay, there's There's another reason for it. I would see guys and gals try to give up the masturbation. But they couldn't. But then they would tell me about their life and their lusting like mothers all day long. Okay, when you're lusting so much all day long, you have got to act out. You cannot stop from acting out when you're lusting that much. Because what it is, <coughs> there are occasions that will stimulate you to acting out, but liken it to dropping a match on a concrete road. I'm sitting here and there's just this concrete or cement here. Okay, I light a match and drop it there and nothing happens. There's no fuel. Okay, but I lust some. And it's like throwing down waste paper and, and wood shavings and kindling wood and sticks. And I drop a match down, an occasional lust, and what happens? Bingo! All that lusting created all that fuel, and I haven't got a prayer stopping it. Okay, so I got lucky because I had just lust left to focus on. That's the only thing I had to give up, so it was so much clearer for me. But in those early days of S.A., the guys were saying to me, What the hell are you doing giving up lust? For God's sakes, that's the greatest thing there is. You know, because there was no knowledge at that time, and they couldn't read the book very good. (laughs) There was no knowledge that time of what the hell it was. You see? So, uh, it, it has taken us up to now, and it's simple to see this now, or simpler to see this now, because the combined experiences of the fellowship, as Roy calls it, in the crucible of our experience, we have come to this tremendous position now where we see it so clearly. So if someone calls me on the telephone now and says, Jess, I'm lusting a little, that's no problem, is it? Boy, I tell you, <laughs> hey, buddy, if you want to stay sober, don't do it. There's a no, and there's a tremendous conviction in my voice. Okay, what happens if that guy says to me seven years ago, Jess, I'm lusting a little, uh, that in the problem isn't. I'd say, well, Gal, I, I don't think I can get away with it. You know, but maybe you can. Okay, we didn't know that then. You know, Roy had... Well, actually, in the when I came in, there was no white book. The white book, you see, was written about 85, 6, somewhere in there. But in 83, there wasn't any white book. Just just a bunch of pamphlets and stuff that were totally unrelated to what the white book is now. So we were operated... All we had is the folder and each other's experience. Okay, so... So we couldn't conceive of how important it was not to lust. And what uh, what I've come to see now is when lust knocks on the door, that there is no handle on lust side of the door. You guys have all had the experience of knocking on a door, where, or coming up to a door where there's no handle on that side. You look at them funny doors. Okay. Who lets lust in? You and I let lust in. The lust doesn't come in unless we open the door. And we didn't know that. Because uh, in the early days, we kind of saw lust as this fearful force that was, we were powerless in, in in front of it. We saw it like a tornado or something. It was just battering into us, and we didn't have a prayer. And we see now in the fellowship, the knowledge of the fellowship is, no, all we do is ask God's help, and we don't have any lust. <laughs> only problem is we've got to be willing to ask the God take it away. I had a beautiful example of that with a a chocolate candy bar. I'm on a uh, no-eating-between-meals diet. I'm going to lose 20 pounds in 20
2: years. (laughs) That
1: doesn't mean I'm going to take that long, but it it also means I'm not going to lose it next week. I'm going to lose it like I gained it, which is I gained 20 pounds in 20 years. I'm going to take 20 pounds off. I might take it all off six months from now. I don't know. But it's going to go in God's time, not my time. But anyway, so I don't eat between meals. So I know where heaven is. It's in our Hers- a giant Hershey's bar. That's heaven. So my two grandkids are with us over Christmas, and here's one of their giant Hershey bars. And so I crack off a roll and I look at it and I said, "Oh my God, we- I'm so stressed out. I need this." And the thought comes, "You got to pray." I don't want to pray. I know it'll. I know. I know my prayer will be answered.
2: <laughs>
1: so I said, "Okay, you got to pray." Okay, God help me. I took the candy and put it away in my candy box where I could eat it after a meal. (laughs) And later on in the afternoon, the same thing happened to me again. Okay, that's the way it is with us on lust. We've been told here that if we'll pray lust away, we're protected against it. And we know that, and that's why we don't pray, because we know it will work. Okay? Okay, and then, like I say, then the other uh, thing about lust is we don't understand we can't get away with it because it forces us, literally, to act out. And then and then we think, okay, how in the hell can we live a life without lust? You see, because most of us think of our sexual careers as being our sexual acting out. But the answer is, you can't masturbate more than uh, 5, 10, 20, 40 times a day. But whatever time that takes, you can't spend more than um, X hours sexually acting out more like x minutes of sexually acting out even in a total of of your 18 hour of your 18 waking hours or 16 waking hours okay what are you doing in between time and the answer is you're lusting so the bulk of our thing is the thinking about sex thinking about the consequences of sex planning for sex all this all of the lust fantasizing in a moment's notice when i first came in this program i watched a guy drive into a, 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 a house in Phoenix there in a side street. Kind of a dark situation. I thought the guy stopped in there to have an affair with someone. The poor dummy was probably going, 99% of the time he's going home. But my sexual mind, no. Oh, that's, and that's luck. Everything is sexual and it's all feeding the addiction. Okay, how can I live without that? And to me, this is the toughest thing that we offer the newcomer. The toughest difficulty we offer the newcomer is we're saying that comforter of yours, that thing that you have relied on for comfort since you were five to ten years old, all of your life up until now, incessantly, you have got to give up and get along without it. So it's just like we're standing on the edge of the Sahara Desert and the guy's got his canteen of lust there, his water. Now I say that's false water, it's killing you. It's got poison in it. And I lay his canteen down and I shoot it full of holes. And I say, come on, we're going for a walk. And we walk out in the Sahara Desert. And I got my canteen over my shoulder with water jiggling around inside, real water. Because I've learned how to get real water out of my canteen. And he doesn't know how to get real water yet because he's new in the program. So he said, God, I'm thirsty, I'm dying. And I said, nobody, you do it. But you've got to get through it. Because that poison back there is killing you, and this is the part that it's taken me some years to get to because I didn't have compassion and understanding for the newcomer the way I should have had. I didn't realize because again I had so much time in this program when I came in. I didn't, re- and most of the most of the people came in an early day SA. Most of us had uh, other program time. I'd say two-thirds of us had, uh, uh AA, EA, Al Anon, some other 12-step program before we came in. So in a sense, we had our, uh, we had an alternate source of water. And now we're having a lot of people come into, uh, SA who have not had another 12-step program. So they come in and we're walking out in the Sahara Desert and they ain't drinking water. And we are. And I, I'm now seeing what we're asking of that person. Now they gotta do it. There is no way out of it. And the quicker you detox from the adrenaline produced by lust, the faster it'll be over. And you're only gonna have to go through it one time. Your first time. But any slip and you gotta go through detox again. So this is why it is so important that the newcomer understands the nature of the drug that he's taking, which is the, the the adrenaline produced by lust. And the pieces of that puzzle have finally come together to me. I was in an early Phoenix meeting, and I was saying to this, another guy in the meeting, I said, my God, I said, that hit of going out after a woman has got to be way up there with heroin. I said, I've never taken the hard drugs, but it's got to be way up there. He said, it is. He said, I'm a member of Narcotics Anonymous, and he said, I've used needle heroin. And he said, for me, the hit of going out after a woman is a bigger high than needle heroin. That's that, you know, that big ultimate charge when we get, when we're really going out after someone. Okay, what the, what the hell's a the drug? And the drug is simple it's, it's the adrenaline and all those other internal produced drugs that we produce inside ourselves. So, hell, we should be members of Narcotics Anonymous. <laughs> And, and if we were, it would be clear. We're manufacturing this drug with by distorting our own body chemistry and physiology. Okay, So that's what we're asking of the newcomer. That they go along in the desert with their mouths so dry and they can't talk and their lips are cracked and we're sitting there drinking out our canteen. We're not having any trouble. Because we know where the true source of water comes. It comes from you. I get my water from you. Some of you claim you get your water from me. So we're we're doing fine. He's got a water in a jug. So there's no problem. And I got water right here. <laughs> Funny how these things work. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but that's... <laughs> you guys aren't talking, so... You... So that's the plight I see now so clearly. And I have so much compassion now for that newcomer. But there is only one way to detox, and that is to detox. It's like the story I read in my early life, the man with the golden arm about the guy who was trying to kick heroin. And he's locked himself in a room and just sweated and banged on the walls and did everything he could. But he had to get off that heroin. And uh, that's the detox that we got to do. Now, there's two ways that we come into this thing. Uh, let's ask. Uh, let me put the choice and then kind of see how we stand here on this. I've never done this before. Some of us come like I did. Uh, in a sense, with max force, we got a gun to our back and it's, it's uh you know, I had to come in or the marriage was gone or we come in or we go to prison or we come in or, you know, various things. Or we come in and we look around and we see, wow, this thing that I've got is headed in a bad direction. I'm not all the way down yet, but I better come in. I know guys that have done that. Okay, how many of you came in like I did with max force behind you? how many came in the other way about half it looks like yeah it's about half and half okay I don't understand the other half of you guys <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: but more, more power to you <laughs> I'm glad there's so many of you <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed it that high uh, in fact I'm really glad I did that I've never done that before I never heard of it being done but yeah that is just wonderful uh because, you know, people come in and they hear our first step stories. And Bozeman, what we do when a person comes in and it's their first meeting. We all just go around the circle and tell an abbreviated first step. And they hear our stories. And I just know so many of them think, well, boy, if I ever got as bad as those guys, I'd do something. But I ain't that bad. <laughs> and, of course, it's like my old AA sponsor, Vince, said. He said, I'd saw, see them guys on skid, he said, and they didn't even have shoes at matched. And he said, I'd think, boy, if I got as bad as them, I'd do something about it. He said, I got as bad as them and worse and didn't do anything about it. Okay. Uh, but I think to those people who, to that person who would come in and say, okay, I'm not as bad as those people, there's two big lessons to learn. Number one is this stuff is progressive. The most awful example I've ever heard of that was a gay guy who sat beside me in Phoenix at a meeting, and my heart just broke for the guy. At first, he had gay relationships with friends, fellow gays. Then he had gay relationships with people that were strangers. And then that kind of got old for him. Because we sex addicts, we have so distorted sex that, that normal sexuality does not work for us because it doesn't give us as big a kick as we want. So then he went to having sex with people that were somewhat dangerous to get his kit. And when he walked into that meeting, he was to the point where he had to, somebody had to have a gun or knife on him for him to be able to have sex with him. Okay, now that is very, very dangerous. And that's a beautiful, it was the most horrible example I've ever seen of the progressiveness of our addiction. How it just takes more and more of the drug to get the job done. So uh I would want the newcomer to to think about that aspect of our story. And then the other thing to think about is to see already what a big price we are paying in our lives or paid at the at whatever level we came in. And then look at that and say, I don't want to pay I don't want to pay that kind of price. I've watched some people uh come in to uh, AA with uh, some very slight reasons uh, a friend of mine heads up a big law firm in minneapolis and he's a catholic and he was on the uh he was head of the society that encourages vocations among uh, young uh, guys to the catholic priesthood um what's that order uh there's a anyway there's a, a charitable organization that does that i forget it but anyway he got too drunk one night and missed the meeting down in northfield 90 miles south of minneapolis and he said, hey, uh, I've seen two or three times like that happen. I must be an alcoholic. And he went to AA. Okay. <laughs> that is a high-bottom alcoholic. Okay. But the fact that that exists is such a hopeful thing because everybody doesn't need to be as dumb as I was and have to practically uh, get killed before they come in. And that's wonderful. And then also, as they found in AA, the longer the organization went on, the clearer these dilemmas became, the more and more people came in who were lower-bottom uh, drunks, instead, of, or rather higher-bottom drunks, excuse me. So I say to you, okay, you can't lust, and how do I know that? And the answer is, we know that because of all the ways that our life has changed now in as we have stopped lusting. And, and now I can do, uh, I have the tremendous benefit of still doing the work that I did Uh, I'm 45 years an advertising, marketing man, and uh, sales consultant. Okay, I'm still doing that work. My first sales job, I sold one out of 20 people. The only way I could stay alive was by making a lot of calls. Okay, seven years later, I sold 11 out of 13, so I was getting better. But what I'm so startled by now is the work that I'm doing with 11 and a half years of sobriety is just dazzling to me. Yeah, but it's a little sickening in a way, because I think, my God, what could I have done? Well I don't I don't regret the past. It's, it's just dazzling to me. I see what I'm able to do now and I think, oh my God, it's like it's like the film is wiped away from my eyes and what I can see and do because my work I love, I love so deeply. In fact, I was negotiating with a client for a big, big uh, bonus uh, system where I'm gonna get three percent of his gross. Uh, sales each year over his uh, over his gain. So uh, when he goes up a million dollars, I get thirty thousand dollars bonus that year, and I will have had you know like twenty five the year before. So we're talking. Uh, uh, this is just one of my clients, but I said I'll tell you a secret. I said I don't know how you're going to co- what you're going to come back at me with what kind of a system. But I said actually I kind of really do this work for nothing because I love it so much. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure he's not used to that either, but. Uh, that's how I feel, and it, and it, and it really is on it. Uh, but it is just such a joy to be able to do the work I love with the tremendous clarity. And what's different about me? Only one thing. I haven't lusted for eleven and a half years. I haven't entertained lust. It's the only thing that's different. And everything that I had dreamed of in life is coming on to me already. There's a line in the big book that says ahead of the promises, and it isn't talked about much, but it says if we are painstaking about our development before we are halfway through. Because so often we think on these spiritual programs that we got to get way out there or get way at far advanced. But this program doesn't work that way. Before we're halfway through, it doesn't say how much before. Okay? We will know a new freedom and a new peace. So we'll not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We'll intuitively know how to handle things that used to baffle us. I walked in the, in Barry's office this afternoon, and or this noon, and was uh, talking to his wife a moment, and intuitively solved a problem that, that she didn't even know existed. Okay, it's just a miracle to me. What's the difference? Just one thing: taking away lust. So what does lust do? It robs me of life. One of our guys in Bozeman was out playing ball with his kid. And, uh, about after 20 minutes, half an hour, the kid went running in the house, Mommy, Mommy, Daddy's playing ball with me for, it's been nearly 20 minutes or a half an hour. And he couldn't believe it. Well, he looked back and obviously he hadn't played, been able to play ball more than five to ten minutes with that kid before. Okay, and he it would just made him sick to see himself and the way he was, so, but he needed the clarity of lust to be able to be patient enough to play with his son. Now I think, and there's no research to back it up like there is with the alcoholic, but I think we have a funny reaction to lust and adrenaline. I think we are particularly sensitive. pictures and the ability to remember pictures and to get a hell of a lot out of pictures and to get a hell of a drug hit from pictures why in the hell would people do what you and I have done which is to give up so much life just to entertain a bunch of pictures Uh, the story that Roy tells in the white book is such a powerful one of where he comes out I think it's in the white book where he comes out of the restaurant or he comes into the restaurant as there are waiting and there's this beautiful gal comes out and one of the guys makes some remark, boy, I'd like to jump in the sack with that one. And <coughs> he starts thinking about her. They go on into the restaurant and pretty soon the guys are talking about something else. But Roy's head is still with that. And two o'clock in the afternoon, his head is still with that woman. Okay, that's us. Okay, now, why do we do that kind of stuff? I don't think it's just an accident i think like the alcoholic we're particularly sensitive to it and get uh, like i said to vince i said vince i said i'm not you know alcohol doesn't do anything for me it just puts me to sleep alcohol he said takes me to the land of impossible dreams okay lust takes me to the land of impossible dreams well why in the hell does it do it for me when it doesn't obviously do it for somebody else because a lot of people won't lay their whole life on the line just to be able to lust, like I will. Okay. Uh, and I see it in alcohol. I won't lay my life on the line for alcohol because it doesn't do anything. I get a little high from it and it's fun to drink. But I'm not going to lay my life down for some drinks. But Vince would. And did. He lost a whole family and spent, you know, 10 years on skid row. Uh, because he had an unnatural High and hit from alcohol. Alcohol did something for him; it wouldn't do for anybody else. And I think it's the same way with lust. Lust does something for us; it won't do for anybody else but us, a sexaholic. That's my that's my guess. Now it might be many years or never before we're able to document that. But I tell you, uh, I believe it enough that I don't want to. You know, I don't need to see the study. I've got a Ph.D. in science, and I know the scientific method and all the other stuff. And uh, But I don't need to see a study. I've seen enough evidence in people's lives, both the ones who came in here and couldn't stay, which is the bulk of people, because in Phoenix, that group was like musical chairs. You had a new person selling lust in every the same chair over and over again. And it was just awful to go through that. So I don't think... I think we're lustaholics, and I don't think we'll ever change. And I think that... To me, as the years go by, we will increasingly comprehend more of what Roy has put in that book about the lustaholic and l- and lusting and 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 all of the problems of it and lust drunks. Now, when we come in. Um, we want. We can say, okay, these ideas maybe work. I'll go home and practice the program. You can't do that here. To me, you need a number of things to practice this program. First of all, I need you. I cannot do this thing without you. To me, that is the miracle of the twelve steps. Is when Bill met Bob. They had a program that would work. Until then, there's no way that that program could work. So I need you. The next thing I need is a God. Some kind of power greater than myself. I don't care what you want to believe in. An old Indian on a heel. The force, you know, the power of nature. Anything. Any, any power outside yourself. Any power greater than yourself. I choose to call it God. Okay, with the group and that power and the white book, you can get sober and stay sober. But you have to, you have to see the true nature of your difficulties. How much time we got, right? Okay, uh, I'll take a little bit more time, and then we'll turn over some questions, and then we'll be out of here. So the first thing that as we come here, the first thing we begin to see is not our insanity, because that's such a damn hard thing to see, but we begin to see how we kept doing over and over again the same dumb thing, and it didn't work. And then we hear somebody at a meeting say, what insanity is, is when you see the same dumb thing over and over again, it doesn't work, that's insanity, and you say, oh, oh my God. Yeah, that is. Okay. So then we see we're insane. Well, if we're insane, we're ready for the second step is that there's a power greater in ourselves going to restore us to sanity. And that is the thing that we offer that the psychological programs can't offer. Our therapists can't offer. I don't think there's any of one of your therapists who can... They Their job is to bring us to a certain place, but it was just like Carl Jung sent... Uh, Roland away and said, I can't do any more for you. You're a hopeless alcoholic and there is no way that therapy can help you. The only answer is a spiritual experience of some kind. And that is what we have to offer here. We can help you see that you're insane. We can give you support and we can point towards a higher power. God, as you understand him, that can restore you to sanity And we tried to find that power. Most of us did when we were acting out. Well, we'll find a simple way. I prayed like a mother. I was a college professor and was abusing, uh, women college students when they'd walk in my office sexually. I was, I was, uh, they didn't fortunately see it as abuse, but I would be sexual way in ways that, with them that was inappropriate. And I would be, here I had at that time, uh, five, seven years in a 12 step program. And I'd be praying to God that I would not be sexual and, and I would be how many of you prayed that you're you you would not act out sexually before you came here how many of you prayed okay okay me and God couldn't get the job done you and God couldn't get the job done you had to have like I did you had to find a God with skin on which is each of you for me somebody who was just like me was my way of getting to God. It's like back in 1935 God finally said hey I made this world beautiful but there's one thing that I left out. There's a bunch of addicts down there who have prayed mightily and yet it does not work for them. So I got to give them a system that will work for them so I'll have these two funny guys meet in Akron and Each of them will see God in me, a God with skin on, and that will be a way. And from that time on, that 12-step program and all the others have had a way to find a God that we can understand in our lives. And then through you, and you as a God with skin on, I can then continue to improve my conscious contact with that God. But it starts with you and it stays with you all my life. I hope that I never get so satisfied with what I have that I stop coming here to you. So where was this power that we find here when we were acting out in the answer? It was here. It was waiting for us, but we had to be willing to humble ourselves by coming to a meeting. And that's why there's such a miracle here. Now, there's two sides of that miracle, and we tend to get lost in the wrong side of it. And I see people, in, in my view, not judging mind you, you know just observing, who are lost in the wrong half of the miracle right in this program. To me, they're lost in the idea of helping themselves. I've got to be nice to myself. i got to do things for myself. Uh, I see it in, in uh, incessantly working the first nine steps, some of the first nine steps, as though we could ever do any one of those steps correctly. I don't give a damn if somebody. I can't. I've had uh, 27 years of step work. There's no way I can do the first step correct still. Uh, and so that to me, the wrong half of the miracle is getting lost in the idea of, of helping ourselves. To me, the right half of the miracle is getting lost in the idea of helping others. It's a service aspect. To me, uh, the, prog- the, the, the first nine steps are to be worked by us as quickly as we can work them. And then spend the rest of our life working the last three steps. And let God then step in and improve and transform us and improve us and remove our defects of character. So that, to me, the best half of this program is where God does the work. We spend the the rest of our life then helping God's children do what they want to do. We do God's work and God does our work. And to me, that is the The half of the miracle that is important that we get lost in that half. So if we will fulfill all the conditions of the 12 steps, we will have everything the 12 steps promise us. And the heart of those 12 steps is surrender. To abandon ourselves completely to this simple program. Here are these 12 steps and they'll fit on a little card in our billfold. And yet that's the biggest thing there is in the world is abandoning ourselves to those steps. Like you you can read and you can translate all 12 of those steps into just a few short words. The first step, I can't. The second step, God can. The third step, so let him. And then the next steps, I clean house. And the last step, the last three steps, is I do God's work and God does mine. That's knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry out. That's practicing the principles. That's carrying the message. That's having the spiritual experience. It's continuing to take inventory. It's all of them is I do God's work and God does mine. We cannot fulfill those conditions. I've never seen anybody that fulfilled those conditions that wasn't transformed and changed radically. One of the early examples, earliest example I saw of this is I have a tape of a New Jersey uh, AA convention, and it's a round table of people with tw- over 25 years of AA sobriety. And as each of those persons just spoke just briefly around that table, it was so beautiful because there was so much, there wasn't a note of disharmony or difficulty or bitterness or any, any negative emotion in their voices. And their voices were clear, they rang like bells. Okay, why? Because as God loosens us up, our voice reflects that looseness. I'm sponsoring this op- or not sponsoring, co sponsoring this opera singer, and I'm telling him, in fact I've put it on some tapes that I made with Glenn and Newark, that as he practices this program his body for a singer, your body is the instrument, it's like a Stradivarius violin. You put it in a humid humidity environment and it loses its tone. Okay, that's a, that's him as a sexaholic. As he gets sexual sobriety, it's drying out that violin so it has its total resonance so that we will be able to hear Mark's recovery in his voice. And they're already hearing it. People who knew him say, my God, you're singing in a way that you've never sung before and that's just only after a, it's like a year of sexual sobriety. Okay, so that's fulfilling these conditions of this program and doing that surrender. Now, that simple surrender is the toughest thing there is in the world because we're men and we're status people. Like all this crap about men and women are the same is the biggest bunch of phony baloney that people are trying to sell themselves. You put three little boys in a room before they have any language could have learned anything. You put three little boys and one toy in a room and the toughest, most dominant kid has the toy. You put three little girls and one toy in the room and they share the toy okay so for us guys surrender is the toughest thing there is it's like why we don't ask for directions because if we got to ask for directions we're putting ourselves below the person we're asking the directions to and we can't bear it so surrender i'll die first okay but the passport to this program is you walking in here and i walking in here and surrender okay it took me I had to be so beat on, I had to be 57 years old and beat on in every way, shape, or form before I could finally surrender. Okay, you know, most of you are surrendering much earlier than that. It's the greatest thing in the world, and if there was any way, it's the greatest gift there is, and if there's any way I could just really give that to you, I'd do anything I could to be able to give you that gift to surrender. But it's not in my hands, It's it's someplace else. So my surrender came from, was given the original impetus of my wife and Kent. Everything that's been given to me and every battle I fought, I have won by surrender. And now I'm just looking for God's will all day long, every day as hard as I can and going where I can. And that's what I would say to my brother if he came to this meeting and met you and had the leaflet and had the white book, and walked out the door. Thank you, and appreciate being with you.
0: I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.